All right, I think it's safe for me to come on up now. As we get started this morning, please remember that beginning next week, uh, we're going to have a two-month emphasis on North American missions and a giving called Annie Armstrong Easter Offering, where all of our gifts over and above our normal tithes and offerings go to go to further the gospel. 100% of them go to fund missionaries on the front lines throughout North America, reaching those who need Jesus Christ. Christ need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So please uh, be prayerfully considering what you will give over and above your regular tithes and offerings uh, to, to be able to facilitate the flow of the gospel throughout the United States. As we come this morning, we indeed are stewards of God's grace. We are stewards of God's grace. And the question we asked last week was, what is it that drives our action? Whatever it is that we are most passionate about, whatever it is that we are most committed to, to is actually what's going to determine where we act. It's going to determine what we do. The reality is that the very heart, at the core of the Bible, it says that whatever we worship, whatever we give ourselves to in our passions, that is what determines what we do. And so understand, as we come this morning, we may be pulled in a variety of different ways. We may be pulled by a passion or a passion for a hobby. Maybe it's hunting or fishing or football or basketball, baseball. Maybe it's golf or tennis or running. Maybe it's just exercising and being in good health. Whatever it is that controls you, whatever it is that consumes you, whatever it is that drives you to action, that shows exactly what your passion is. Maybe your passion is not hobbies. Maybe your passion is your career. You have a great desire to attain a certain position, a certain title. Maybe you have a great desire to attain a certain rank or maybe a certain salary, and then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll be happy. And everything in your life is consumed with you pushing forward so that you can gain that position, that rank, or that salary. Maybe you're great, you're consumed by entertainment, by the shows that you have to watch and the videos, video games that you have to play, the, the time that you have to give to updating and keeping everybody informed of the things that are absolutely pointless in your life. You feel like everybody needs to know on Facebook every time you get up and go get a glass of water or you feel like the world would somehow be interested to know that that you uh, have sent out a tweet to inform the world you have gotten up and gone to a restaurant and now you're sitting down for dinner. See, we can consume ourselves with entertainment. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's relationships that consume us. And we touched on this last week. And I want to touch on it again. Because listen guys. If we put anyone or anything before the living God. That is idolatry. And that includes our marriage relationships. Our relationship with our spouse. That includes our relationships with our children or grandchildren. Listen. If there is anyone or anything that comes between you and the relationship you have with the living God who has saved your soul and given you eternal life, that is idolatry and it must be addressed because it is pulling your passions away from the all-consuming passion for Jesus Christ. Maybe it's politics. 
and you just get caught up and you think that there is a political personality or perhaps a political party or perhaps a political ideology that will save everything and you are consumed with pressing that forward in the midst of this world, making sure everybody knows and understands and agrees with you on which political personality, political party, or political ideology will be the greatest hope for America. Let me tell you now. If your greatest passion in life is one of these things, whether it be hobbies or entertainment or career or relationships or anything along the line, listen, you have an idol before the living God. What or where does your passion translate into action? Where is it that your passion translates into action? Where is it that your worship turns in to work? As you discern what passion looks like in your life, consider your life, consider whether or not your life is consumed with a passion, a burning passion that you give all of your time to Jesus Christ and to Him alone, that you seek to serve Him with every ounce of energy that you have. Indeed, your passion is what you give your time to without complaint. Your passion is where you find your identity. Your passion is what you talk about, what you think about what you dream about what you are consumed with see our passions are defined by what we care for what we are concerned with and what we are committed to and God desires for his children to be devoted disciples who in turn are disciple makers and difference makers within the local body of his bride the church And He wants us to be active within that local church, within that context. He's passionate about our activity within the local church. And so we need to consider whatever He is passionate about, we need to be passionate about. We need to focus our attention and our affections on. See, God was so passionate about our salvation that it drove Him to action. The action of sacrificing His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary to bear the penalty and the wrath and the justice and the judgment of His holiness against our sin. And He did it so that you and I wouldn't have to face that. The reality is this is God's mercy that He has spared us from what we deserve. He has spared us the wrath, the judgment, and the justice upon our sin. He has spared us indeed the eternal death and damnation that we deserve. But then this is God's grace. Not just that He spared us from what we deserve, but He gave us something we didn't deserve. He has given us those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. He has given us eternal life so that we might seek and serve him with every ounce of energy that we have he has given us a new heart a new life and a new start and now the question is what are we going to do with it he spared nothing in his love and this is god's love that he sent his son his only son his one and only son so that you and i might have life that's passion in action The question is, do we have passion that matches in that action? Do we have a passion that consumes us? 
Do we have a passion that, that moves us on to serve God? Indeed, God now not only has saved our souls, He's not only given us salvation, but now He has given us gifts. He is sanctifying us to, to work within the community of believers that we call the church so that we can then share and show the gospel with all those within our community, that we can share and show the gospel to the ends of the earth, that we can share and show the gospel with every sinner who needs God, who needs God's Savior. See, God is calling for us to be passionate stewards of His gifts, of the spiritual gifts He has given to us through the Holy Spirit as we complete the Great Commission by facilitating the flow of the gospel to the ends of the earth, by fulfilling what Jesus said for those who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to be discipled through through teaching them all things that He had commanded. Listen, the question for us today is, do we realize the great mercy, the great love, and the great grace God has given us in salvation, and not only in salvation, salvation do we realize the greatness of the love the grace and the mercy god has given us in sanctification as he conforms us to his image and let me ask you this morning do we respond to god's gracious gifts as gracious gifts as stewards or as owners do we see ourselves as caretakers and custodians or do we see ourselves consumed with our own ambitions using God's gifts and God's talent in our life for our own purpose. Listen, we need to be good stewards of God's grace. God doesn't just want us to be daters of His church. He wants us to be devoted disciples that in turn make others disciples. He wants. He doesn't just want us to be sitters. He actually wants us to be servants. God doesn't just want people that stumble into and out of church every couple of weeks. He wants stewards of His grace grace that are faithful in serving his purposes in evangelism and edification we are to be stewards of god's grace through our service to one another let me ask you this morning are you a steward of god's grace are you a caretaker are you a custodian of what god has given to you are you making use of it or are you just letting it sit on the shelf saying well i'll get around to it one day maybe when i'm older i'll serve god God gave you spiritual gifts to serve Him here and now. The question for us is, will we be good stewards of those gifts? Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11. through 11, And let's stand in honor of the reading of this, God's holy word. And let's see in this passage of Scripture that we, as Christians, are to be stewards of God's grace. Stewards of God's grace. First Peter chapter four, verses seven and following says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As each one has received a special gift, Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your saving grace that, that Father, uh, secured our salvation and brought us to be children of the Most High. We thank you for that special grace, the, the grace of the gifts that you have given through your Holy Spirit. That, Father, are given so that we might edify, so that we might encourage, so that we might build up the church. Father, help us to see, Father, where our gifts lie and what they are for. And, Father, as we see them, as we recognize them, help us put them into service. Let us step forward and serve you faithfully within the church, ministering so that many might come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and so that all those who come to know Him as Lord and Savior might be conformed to His image. Lord, make, a, make us realize this morning as we study Your Word that we have been made objects of Your grace so that we might become showcases of Your grace to the watching world. Lord, lead us and guide us now. Speak, Lord, for Your servants are listening. Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in this passage that Peter begins by bringing up the subject to the end of all things. In view of the suffering that you are going through, church, you ought to understand that you are at the end times, that the end is near. It is pressing in. And so after reminding the church that they were going to suffer and showing them that they need to keep in mind the sufferings of Christ in order that they would suffer well, Peter now reminds them of the urgency of our mission with the understanding that Christ will return and soon we will give an answer and the reality is he has designed for you and I the church of Jesus Christ to take the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth so that many might come to be saved the question is are we going to be stewards who use the gifts he has given to complete the task he has given that's the question And so Peter is saying, hey, listen, Christ is ready to return. The time is near. The time has come near. And literally, that means that everything is in place for Christ to return. In other words, the work of salvation has come and Christ has come as Savior. Now the gospel is going to the ends of the earth and there is nothing else on God's eternal calendar until Jesus Christ comes to get his bride. Be prepared. Be prepared. Be ready. The end is near. The next thing on God's eternal agenda is for the full and final redemption of His church. And then He will judge the living and the dead. And so now we need to understand that we have been given a task. And it is this task that as God's children assembled together in His church, we are to pray soberly. We are to love fervently. We are to minister faithfully as good stewards of God's grace. That as we 
meet together within the church. We are to give ourselves to praying soberly. We are to give, give ourselves to loving fervently. We are to give ourselves to ministering faithfully because we are good stewards of God's resources. Marshall says this, in the church where there is a lack of love and common purpose and where the spiritual lifeline of communication to God is broken, the forces of opposition will weaken and eventually destroy the church. In these verses, Peter emphasizes how crucial it is that local churches be strong in fellowship with firm links of life and loyalty between the members and also between the members and God. What he's saying is just this. Listen, if you want to have a strong church, you need to be a praying church, a church that prays soberly in every area of life. If you want to be a strong church, you need to be a loving church, a a church that loves one another fervently with the love of Jesus Christ. If you want to be a strong church, you need to be a, a missional church. You need to be a church that is ministering faithfully God's gifts among you. And you're doing all by God's grace and for His glory. See, God's children are assembled together in the local church to pray soberly, to love fervently, to minister faithfully as good stewards of God's grace. Let's begin there in verse 7 and see that we are to pray soberly. We are to pray soberly. Peter uses two terms here in this passage that instructs believers to think and evaluate situations in life in view of prayer. Indeed, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 17 says what? That we are to pray without ceasing. In everything, we are to pray. The idea is that prayer should increase as the battle of life's intensities moves towards its designed end. In other words, Ephesians 6.18 comes to bear that all of our prayers and petitions are establishing us to stand firm for the gospel message in the midst of a world that is fighting to destroy us. And we've got to be bold in that proclamation. We've got to be bold in carrying forth the gospel. But understand, the boldness to stand, the boldness to complete the task does not come from us. It comes from the power source within us who is God Himself. And it comes to us when we are praying soberly for Him to work in our lives. See, Christians must be alert as to the things that they should pray for. Indeed, informed, thoughtful prayer is better than just sending up the old faithful. Anybody got the old faithful? You've got it down because you've prayed it for 45, maybe 75 years. And you pray the same thing every day at the same time at the same place, and you never change a minute for your prayer. See, we're tempted to get in habits. We're tempted to get into rituals. But the reality is every day brings new challenges. And in every new challenge, we are to have those prayers lifted up before the living God, asking that he would bless us, that he would work within us. Indeed, Peter expects our prayers to be based on knowledge and spiritually mature evaluation of all of life. And so Peter assumes that prayer will be a continual through the day experience 
experience and that these, these disciples, these churchgoers are praying. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter tells the church to prepare their minds for action, for engagement, to be sober in spirit, to fix their hope and their gaze on the grace of God to be revealed at the return of Jesus Christ. Isn't it just amazing how when we see that sober-minded, when we think of that term sober-minded, we just run past it when it comes to sports. See, we will lose our mind for a team throwing a ball through a hoop or crossing a chalk line in the middle of a pasture. Changes football, doesn't it, when I present it that way? See, we'll lose our minds for things like that. We throw ourselves into these sports. We give ourselves unrelentingly in these areas. But God's Word says we are to be sober-minded and we are to have nothing that consumes us more than Christ Himself. We are to give ourselves nothing to nothing more passionately than we give ourselves to our great God. Listen, the athletic, academic, and all sorts of insignificant stuff of our lives are to pale in comparison to the zeal that we have for God we must be a praying people and we must pray soberly looking at every area and aspect of our life chapter 5 verse 8 Peter again reminds the church that we are to be sober minded in all things alert because Satan our adversary is prowling about throughout the throughout creation seeking whom he might devour he says listen you need to be on guard you need to be alert you need to be sober in every area and aspect of your life so that you are concentrated upon jesus christ and his gospel in one region of africa the first converts to christianity uh, were very diligent about their prayer life They were so diligent, in fact, about their prayer life that they all went out of their village and they would go out on the trail and then they would turn off the trail to go down to their own personal places where they would give themselves to fervently praying before God. These villagers refer to these places as their prayer rooms and there they would follow their footpaths into the brush. They would find that still and solitary place. They would get alone and they would pray diligently before God for hours and hours. Hours. And because these new Christians were concerned for one another's spiritual warfare, they would keep watch over one another's paths. And it was amazing. As long as the path was being used and there was a continual fervency in prayer by each individual Christian, you know what? The path never had any grass on it. Do you know how they knew when somebody was struggling with their prayer life? The grass began to grow over the path. And because of their great concern for one another, they would come to one another and say, listen, brother, I see that there's grass in your path. You need to beat your way to God's throne more often. Brothers and sisters, we often let grass grow in our path. We are not fervent. We are not sober-minded in our prayer. We are often anything but that. But understand, spiritual power comes from being plugged into our spiritual source. And the spiritual source is God. And the spiritual power flows in prayer. 
Brothers and sisters, we must be prayers. The understanding that Christ is on His way will do much good to speed our prayer, to speed our prayer life along. Indeed, this can be done. We can pray anytime, anywhere, about anything. We can do it while we're washing dishes or while we're exercising or driving, while we're mowing the lawn. And it doesn't matter where you are or what you are doing. You can be in constant prayer for the things and the needs of your life every moment in every place we are to give ourselves to calling upon God to give us the power to make it through and listen we must be alert to the spiritual significance of all of our life not just a part of it as we prepare to pray we must guard against vain repetition and thoughtlessness within the course of our prayers life is short the return of Christ is soon and we are at war pray soberly secondly We are to love fervently. We are to love fervently. Look there at verses 8 and 9. And there we see, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because the love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. This kind of love is agape love and and can be commanded because it is primarily a decision of the mind, not a feeling into which a person falls. The goal of agape love is always to seek the good of the other person who is being loved. The evidence of agape love is just this. It is action acting on behalf of someone else. The extent of agape love is sacrifice. And thus, believers are to love each other fervently. We are to love each other deeply. And this word means to be stretched, to be molded. It's stretching out, stretching us out so that we fit into the form of God. True agape love is constantly being stretched to the limit by the demands that are made upon it. This is precisely where agape love shines through within our lives, within our churches, and within our community when we give ourselves to loving others even as Christ loved us. See, one of the most difficult and inconvenient times when we are called to love is when someone in the church has done something wrong to us or betrayed us. The reality is, there will be those times. We are not perfect people, are we? We oftentimes fall and fail in what we desire to do. But understand, even in the midst of those times when we are hurt by somebody else, we must demonstrate a love that is being, is willing to stretch over uh, because love covers a multitude of sin. We must be, have a love that is willing to forgive. For indeed, when it says covers there, there in that passage, it literally means that we would be willing to forgive. And this is to be constantly true in the life of every believer. If you know Jesus Christ, let me put it to you this way. What if tomorrow Jesus Christ looked and said, you know what, Todd? I'm tired of your sinning. I'm tired of your disappointing me. I'm tired of you hurting me because you constantly do what I don't want you to do. I tell you what, Todd, today is the day when I stop covering or forgiving your sin. What if God looked at you and said that to you tomorrow? What a sobering thought then why in the world, if God would not act like that towards us, would we ever act like that towards another Christian? We must love deeply. 
We must be stretched. Love does not ignore the reality of personal sin any more than it justifies or condones it. The confrontation of sin is appropriate and necessary, especially when we demonstrate love in our actions. But understand, it is just as important to demonstrate a willingness to forgive as it is to demonstrate a willingness to confront. Forgiveness, like love, is an act of the will and it is an act of personal choice. A person chooses either to forgive or not to forgive and that makes all the difference Wayne Grudem says it like this where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians many small offenses and even some large ones are overlooked and forgotten but where love is lacking every word is viewed with suspicion every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound let me ask you husbands and wives how is your marriage doing in agape love see because that home life is the cornerstone it's the building block of our relationships how are you doing in agape love how are you doing in loving one another and forgiving one another is your life filled with examples where you are willing to forgive and overlook and overcome offenses or are you constantly under suspicion are you constantly trying to misunderstand and see how conflict can be stirred up siblings what about you what about the interaction between you and your brother and your sister how are you doing with that what about with your parents are you constantly looking at them saying how are, they just want to hold me back all the time? Maybe they just want you to understand God's grace in your life by leading you and guiding you in a good and holy direction. We need to understand when we go into our work, we need to be people who are known as lovers of God and lovers of others, people whose love fervently stretches us to be able to forgive others. Church, this passage is specifically about here. So the application we draw out into marriages, into relationships with parents and and brothers and sisters, the relationships within our work is all fine and good. But let me tell you, church, a church that is falling apart because there's always suspicion, always something being thought, something is being done underhanded or backhanded. Listen, that is a church that does not know how to love fervently. And if we inhabit that, it will destroy us. To serve without love is hypocrisy. To preach without love is harsh and legalistic. To do missions without love is cold and mechanical. Sometimes to love someone is indeed difficult. In fact, some people are difficult to love. But there are some of you here who have never once bothered to open your house to someone else within your community of faith, within your church. You've never bothered to have somebody over for dinner. You've never bothered to reach out to that single person who is here by themselves and ask if you can help them. You've never bothered to reach out to that young Air Force couple and say, you know what, let us take your kids off your hands for a while so you can go and have a dinner. You've never reached out and said, you know what, you need a family here in Goldsboro. We want to be your family because after all, we are one family in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's love. That's fervent love. 
And how are we to do it? We are to do it without grumbling and complaining. See, that's the other problem. Some of us do it. We just complain about it the whole time we're doing it. That's not true love either, is it? See, we must be about the business of caring for our own within our community of faith. We must be about loving people even as Christ has loved us. Some of you are being hospitable but constantly complaining. Allow Christ to love people through you when you are out of love. Indeed, then we will truly be people who love fervently. And in that, we will find that God's love covers a multitude of sins, a multitude of our sins and their sins. Finally, this mo- or thirdly, this morning, we come to ministering faithfully. Peter explains here the great truth that all believers indeed have been given a spiritual gift by God to be used for the work of the ministry. He uses the word charisma here in this verse, and that's the same word that he uses in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he specifically discusses these gifts. And he says that, he says that he is, God has given spiritual gifts. Flip with me really quickly to 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look there at the layout and answer the question, what are spiritual gifts? It says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 6 and following, there are many varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles or works of power and to another prophecy and to another the distinguishing of spirits to another various kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues but one and the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually just as he wills if you look down in verses 27 through 30 you'll find even more spiritual gifts listed If you look over in Romans chapter 12, you will find there in verses 6 through 8, even more gifts lifted. You will also find in Ephesians chapter 4 that we read earlier this morning, spiritual gifts listed. And so the question is, what are spiritual gifts? Well, if you look at verses 8 through 10, these are spiritual gifts that God has given for special abilities. They're just things that God has given His believers to walk in in the midst of their faith journey so that they might be faithful in sharing the gospel and building up the church. They are special God-given abilities. They're not what you and I have given ourselves. They're not something we have developed in and of ourselves. It is something God has given us a propensity, a proclivity to. Secondly, they are given by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Who's responsible for your spiritual gift? Who? That's a question. Who's responsible for your spiritual gift? God, the Holy Spirit. He gives to each one just as He desires. Thirdly, every believer in Christ has has received a gift and the, the gift is given for what? Well, look in verse 7. For the what? For the manifestation of the Spirit, for the common good. In, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, it says, for the building up of the church. Why are they given for the common good and for the bu- building up of the body of Jesus Christ? 
And how can we be good stewards of the spiritual gifts that God has given us? Well, first of all, we need to identify our spiritual gifts and know what our spiritual gifts are. We need to spend time praying and asking God to show us where they are. And we need to look and observe within our life where our talents and desires lie. We need to seek counsel from other Christians who have wisdom to show us and to give us discernment in our direction. Listen, we need to identify the spiritual gifts God has given. Secondly, we need to allow God to fully develop the gift within you. We need to allow God to work in our lives in such a way that we're reading the Word of God. We are praying that it would be active in power within our life. And then we are living out the testimony that He gives in that He will give us the power to, to continue to develop that gift. In fact, Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 6, is where Paul tells Timothy, listen, you need to fan into flame the gift that was given to you. How do you fan it into flame? You need to use your gift as God leads you. You need to not turn away, not shrink away. But when God gives you a door of opportunity, you need to exercise that spiritual gift He has given you. And you need to always keep it in a proper perspective. You need to use it with humility, understanding that your gift is not about you and your accomplishments. It's not about you and your aptitude. It is about God and His grace. And you are just a minister through which a vessel through which God is working. Peter also explains the purpose for ministry in the body. He says that, that to be a good steward, uh, a steward, a good steward of your gift, you are to figure out what it is and to use it. You are to, when we come to that term steward there in verse 10, it literally means a household slave charged to manage something that belonged to his master. Isn't that a great picture of what spiritual gifts are in your life and in my life? We are what? Slaves to our master, working out the gifts that he has given to us. And so a steward is a custodian. They are a caretaker. And you and I are custodians and caretakers of a spiritual gift God has given every Christian so that his body might be built and so that his gospel might go forward. Indeed, believers are agents of God and passing on the benefits of his grace through our lives. God does not grant us gifts of grace for our personal use. He doesn't grant us gifts of grace for our personal exploitation. He gives them to us for the benefit of his body. See, it says that we are to serve one another with them. I want you to think about that term diakonos. When it comes from diakonos, it means servant, one who would serve others. We have a group of men in the church who are called deacons, who are servants of the church facilitating the physical care and ministry to those within the church. And the question for you and I is, uh, do we truly understand and do we desire to be servants in the hand of the master? It means that we would attend to others. This, this is someone who would attend to the physical, the spiritual, and the emotional and mental needs of another. Peter says that we are to serve one another using our gifts so that the spiritual body might be increased. Attend, indeed, we ought to challenge ourselves to attend to the needs of the body by exercising the gifts God has 
is given. And I love how a Puerto Rican lady once, once described the gifts. She said, I, I want you to understand, gifts are not necessarily mature at the time of discovery. They are developed through practice. They're developed through practice. Charles Stanley said there are four things that we know are true about every Christian who is not using their spiritual gifts. First of all, they are robbing the local body of believers in which they associate. Secondly, they are forcing other members to carry the load that they should be carrying. Thirdly, they are dead weight on that body. In other words, they are dysfunctional limbs that have to be drug along instead of actively working to move the body along. Fourthly, they are out of touch with the Holy Spirit of God because they are not walking in what God has designed them to do. I pray that you're not one of those. I pray that you're not a dysfunctional limb that is robbing from God's church, that is causing others to carry a load that you ought to be bearing. I pray that you are not out of touch with the Spirit of God, but rather that you are in touch knowing exactly what He has gifted you to do and serving faithfully in that capacity. Listen, some may say, well, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Well, you need to be reading, you need to be praying, and you need to give yourself to study so that God might show it to you. In addition, I have spiritual gifts inventories that were, are very helpful in pointing you in the direction of what God has gifted you to do. I would be delighted for you to get one of those and take it home and fill it out and come back and us discuss it, discuss it so that we might encourage you to use your spiritual gift. If you know what your gift is and you're not using it to build up the body, then listen, you're not being a good steward of what God has given to you. And as, as a result, our church is going to suffer. The, the work of Christ across this world will suffer. And we will not fulfill the purposes for which He has designed us. See, the last days are not a time for the church to be weak. It's not a time for the church to draw back. It is a time for us to be strong. The spiritual gift of just showing up on, spirit, on Sunday morning is not within the pages of Scripture. Listen, God never called you just to come sit, soak, and sour. God called you to come and serve. He wants you to be active. Your presence is indeed expected, but your participation is an expression of God's grace working through you. God has gifted you for service and your life will be more fulfilling as you accomplish what God has planned for you to do. Don't neglect the gifts. There is a great work to do. The gospel must go forward. Are you willing to do that? Time is now. And we, is, is the time of Christ's return is near. And we are going to be accountable for the service that we do. But finally, this morning, you may be going, I'm overwhelmed, Pastor, because I don't even know where to begin. I don't know how I'm going to do all the things that I need to do. You said I need to serve. You said I needed to figure out my spiritual, uh, my spiritual gift. I don't know how I could ever do any of the things that you have laid out. Well, that's okay. Look at verse 11. For now, uh, verse 11, 
of First Peter chapter 4, where it says, Whoever speaks is to do so as what? One who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving. Basically, he says, there are two major areas of gifting, those who are service-oriented and those who are speaking-oriented. And he says that they are not any different. There's no division. But the ones who speak are to speak the words of God on his behalf. The one who serves is to serve in the power of God on his behalf. Listen, we are to are to walk out our gifts with seriousness and with devotion. And we speak, when we speak, we speak the words of God given in the power of God. And when we serve, we serve how? In the strength of God. When the gifts of grace are applied in this way, the attention and the praise shift from you and I, from the individual believer to the one who has gifted the believer in the first place. And so now all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory will go to Jesus Christ and to God the Father who has given us these these gifts through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when you and I serve, we are to give God all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory for everything He has done. Listen, if you ever speak of words, of encouragement and it falls upon a a thankful ear you need to point out to them very quickly it wasn't you that spoke it it was god who gave it to you to be spoken if you ever come along and serve someone and thank a heart of thankfulness overflows and praise to you you need to tell them very quickly listen don't give me any praise honor and glory it was god that allowed me to have the strength to serve you Jonathan Edwards said, resolved, that all men should live for the glory of God. Resolved, second, that whether or not others do, I will. You and I must live by the grace and for the glory of our loving and gracious God. We prepare ourselves for Christ's coming. We are to prepare ourselves by praying soberly, by loving more fervently, by ministering more faithfully through the grace and giftedness that God has given us, by speaking the words He has given and serving in the strength that He has given to us. If you do, the end of all things will be to have God glorified through Jesus Christ in your life. Only when our gifts of God's grace are exercised in this matter is Christ seen clearly and magnified above all things this week it was absolutely amazing because my wife she she was cooking she's a wonderful cook you can tell i'm sure but she's a wonderful cook and she was making an apple pie and you know what she had me do she had me cut up 10 apples and put them in a big bowl And I took all of those apples and I put them in a big bowl. And then she told me, she said, okay, now you need to scoop out a teaspoon of cinnamon and put it in the bowl. A teaspoon of cinnamon for 10 apples? I mean, a huge bowl of apples. That's not going to be enough. You know what happened then? I took a spoon and I started stirring it around. Started stirring it and stirring it and stirring it. And within a couple minutes, you know what happened? Every single piece of apple in that bowl had the taste of cinnamon on it. What a beautiful aroma and what a wonderful taste. But you know what? That's a picture of what God wants to do with the Christian. He wants to take you and sprinkle the blood of Jesus Christ upon you and give you a clean conscience. 
a new heart and a new life and a new start. And then He wants to take you and He wants to give you the Holy... He's going to take you and give you the Holy Spirit who is going to lead you and guide you, who's going to give you, gift you with a spiritual gift so that you might be a blessing and a benefit to the church body so that you might serve to the building up of the body. And then you know what He's going to do? He's going to come and He's going to put you in a local church body and He's going to start mixing you together. And He wants your aroma in your seasoning to rub off on others what a gracious god we serve let me ask you this morning is your seasoning and your aroma pleasing to god is it rubbing off on others see this morning there are several opportunities that we have First of all, if we are sinners who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, we have the opportunity to give our hearts and our life to Jesus Christ and say, you know what, I know I'm a sinner. I know I have transgressed your law and your commands. I know that Jesus Christ was your perfect and pure Son who you gave on the cross of Calvary to die for my sins and to save my soul. God, I give myself back to you. But then, understand, He doesn't just want to save you so you can sit, soak, and sour. He wants to save you so you can serve. So, if you are here this morning and you know Christ is your Savior and Lord, the second question that I want you to ask yourself is, am I a showpiece of God's grace by using my spiritual gifts? See, we need teachers in our children's ministry. We need those who would come alongside of our nursery ministry and work and minister to our children. We need those who would go out and be evangelists within our community, those who would spread the gospel by going door to door and sharing the grace of Jesus Christ. We need others who would come and have the gift of hospitality and maybe they would stand at the back door and greet those who are coming in and going out and share the love of Jesus Christ in a practical and a real way. We need teachers who would come alongside our adults and encourage them to walk in faith to Jesus Christ, we need to be a body of believers who are praying soberly, who are loving fervently, who are ministering faithfully. My question is, where are you working today? What would God have you do in the midst of His family? Father, we pray now that each and every one of us, each and every one of us, Father, would be vessels that would be used by our master, that would be faithful to serve the, the uh, part that you have given us to play. Father, we pray that we indeed would have a pleasing aroma and a pleasant seasoning. Father, to all those that came into contact with us, so that we, as we use your spiritual gifts, might, Father, share and show the gospel and thereby facilitate the completion of the Great Commission. Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us hearts that are broken over our sin, that, Father, you would give us hearts that are broken over our slothfulness and slack, slackness and fulfilling the works of your service that you have given. And, Father, that each and every moment as we go forth from this place, we would live by your grace and for your glory. Lord, We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now as we...